I'm hoping that you are getting a lot out of this psalm series. I know I have learned a ton just in my preparation. And I'm especially looking forward to the unique psalm that we will be covering tonight. How many of you have been to the George Bush, George W. Bush Presidential Library here in Dallas? Okay, a lot of you. Well, I live about 10 minutes from there, but I had never been until a few weeks ago. My sister was in town, and I asked her if she'd like to go. She said yes. Well, I had been warned by several friends that you will leave with a heavy heart. And that's because George Bush's presidency was defined by 9-11 and its aftermath. And even though we've had more than 10 years uh, since the event, in many ways, we will never be the same. We began our psalm series with Psalm 1 that pointed to the way of wisdom. Then we did Psalm 145 that put praise on our lips. Last week, we did Psalm 116 that displayed a thankful heart. And tonight, we're doing Psalm 79 that will show us how God's people grieve. So we're going to begin with a uh, video. Goodbye, England's rose. May you ever grow in our hearts. You were the grace that placed itself where lives were torn apart. You called out to our country. And you whispered to those in pain Now you belong to heaven And the stars spell out your name And it seems to me You lived your life like a candle in the wind Never fading with the sunset When the rain set in your footsteps will always fall here Along England's greenest hills Your candles burned out long before Your legend ever will For our nation's golden child And even though we try The truth brings us to tears All our words cannot express The joy you brought us through the years And it seems to me You lived your life like a candle in the wind Never fading with the sunset when the rain set in And your footsteps will always fall here Along England's greenest hills Your candles burned out long before Your legend ever will
torn apart Goodbye means rose from a country lost Without the soul who missed the wings of your compassion More than you'll ever know And it seems to me you lived your life like a candle in the wind Never fading with the sunset when the rain set in Your footsteps will always fall here along England's greenest hills Your candles burned out long before Your legend ever will Candles burned out long before Your legend ever be England grieves the loss of her princess The whole world comes to a halt and joins in The unspeakable sadness lies not only in her death, but in the road that brought her there. Her life started out so promising, but ended in rejection, betrayal, and a longing for happiness that eluded her. No fairy tale ending for this princess. Out of the grief comes a lament, a song a very sad song. Elton John was the designated voice that said so eloquently what we all wanted to say. He sang the words, and we all felt the words with him. This is how a nation grieves, with words of a lament. The words don't have to provide answers, although sometimes they do. It's just a way to express raw emotion attached to an event. When you heard this song tonight, did you relive the sadness? Yes. And if there had been a lesson to be learned, we would have relearned that too. This is why we have lament psalms. The word lament is both a noun and a verb. The noun is an expression of grief and mourning. The verb is to express deep grief and mourning. There are more than 60 lament psalms out of 150. And what that tells us is this is an important genre and a necessary practice for God's people. Now, we live in a society that tells us, put on a happy face. Look at the positive. Look at the bright side. Don't worry. Be happy. And yet, Ecclesiastes tells us that there is a time for every activity under heaven. There is a time to weep. There is a time to mourn. And God makes everything beautiful in its time. There is a time for Philippians 4. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, think on these things. But there's also a time 
to sob your heart out and spill your guts over all the heartbreaks in this world. There are three kinds of laments in the Bible. So let's look at the first one. Okay, the first lament is an individual lament. This is crying out to God for personal woes. And it's easily recognized by the use of pronouns, I, my, me. For example, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. Okay, the second type of lament is a communal lament also called a corporate lament or a national lament. And this is crying out to God on behalf of a nation or a community. And it's recognized by the pronouns we, our, us. For example, hear us, O shepherd of Israel. Awaken your might. Come and save us. Okay, then the third type of lament is a mixed lament. This is both individual and communal. And the best example of that is the book of Lamentations. I am a man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. That would be individual. And then remember, O Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. That's communal. Tonight, we are looking at a communal lament, crying out to God on behalf of a nation during a time of national crisis. Who wrote Psalm 79? It is a psalm of a soft. Now, for the record, the correct pronunciation is a soft, not Asaph. It's kind of like the difference between Kiev and Kiev. Most people call it Kiev, but if you've ever been there, you know it's Kiev. Okay, that's just for the record. Okay, so who is Asaph? Well, he wrote 12 psalms, 73 through 83, plus Psalm 50. In David's time, he was the chief musician. So today, we would call him the worship leader. However, this psalm was written 400 years after the time of David, so this would be one of the sons of Asaph, a descendant of Asaph. In Psalm 79, Asaph is the spokesperson for the nation, just as Elton John was the spokesperson for a nation in their grief. Now, this particular psalm makes no sense at all without the historical background. In 586 BC, the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem. The city was burned, the walls were demolished, the temple was destroyed. Many lay dead in the streets, thousands were taken into exile, and a small remnant remained in the city. Why did God allow this to happen to his people and his city and his temple? Well, Second Chronicles gives us a good summary. Okay, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. 
He brought up against them the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young nor old. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the treasures of the Lord's temple, both large and small, and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped the sword. They became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. So why did God allow this to happen to his people and his city? National apostasy. And what I mean by that is a falling away of the faith, abandoning one's faith. The leaders were unfaithful and the people were unfaithful. Here would be one example of the leaders. King Manasseh built altars inside God's temple to the sun, the moon, and the stars. In the temple courts, they had living quarters for the male shrine prostitutes in the temple courts. We can't even imagine this type of activity going on in our church. Then the people were led astray by the leaders. God had chosen his people to be their holy rep- God's holy representatives and to be lights to the nation. But instead, they followed the evil practices of the other nations. Now, the Lord had put stipulations in the law of Moses— Blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And one of those curses for disobedience was that they would be defeated by their enemies and expelled from the land. God sent prophets again and again to warn them, but they were ignored. In his timing, God was true to his word, and he brought an enemy to defeat them. This national catastrophe would mark their history forever. Psalm 79, a psalm of Asaph. O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have reduced Jerusalem to rubble. They have given the dead bodies of your servants as food to the birds of the air, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there is no one to bury the dead. We are objects of reproach to our neighbors, of scorn and derision to those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. For they have devoured Jacob and destroyed his homeland. Do not hold against us the sins of the fathers. May your mercy come quickly to meet us, for we are in desperate need. Help us, O God, our Savior, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and forgive our sins for your namesake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Before our eyes, make known among the nations that you avenge the outpoured blood of your servants. May the groans of the prisoners come before you. 
By the strength of your arm, preserve those condemned to die. Pay back into the laps of our neighbors seven times the reproach they have hurled at you, O Lord. Then we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will praise you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Can you even imagine singing this very sad song? There are four major characters in this lament psalm. God, the people who are left in Jerusalem after the city is destroyed, not those carried into exile. There are plenty of laments written for them but those who are left behind living with the devastation. Okay, so God, the people left in Jerusalem, the nations that attacked them, that would be primarily Babylon, and the neighboring nations around them who mocked after they were decimated. Okay, let's look at the structure of a lament psalm because almost all of the lament psalms follow this structure. First, cry out to God, vent the problem, whatever it is, confess sin, plead for God's intervention, and then express confidence in God. And you can see Psalm 79 follows this same structure. Okay, so now let's look at the outline for the psalm that we're going to cover tonight. Call to God, that'd be verse 1. Then God's city destroyed, 1 through 4. God's jealous anger five through eight, a plea for God's intervention, nine through 12, and anticipated praise to God. With this background, we enter their situation and hopefully see ourselves. Verses one through four are the call to God and the lament. They are reliving through words the horror of what has just taken place. Verse 1, O oh God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. This is the cry of the helpless to the only one who can help. Then he describes the problem. The nations have invaded your inheritance. Well, the nations, that would be primarily Babylon, a Gentile heathen nation, have invaded your inheritance. And when God speaks of his inheritance, he is referring to the land, the people, the city. They have defiled your holy temple. Gentiles had entered this sacred space. They plundered its treasures, they set it on fire, and they destroyed it completely. The significance of this event is more than just burning down a church. The temple signified God's presence. It was the place where the priests did their mediating work between God and man. It was the place where they did sacrifices for their sin. And it was the place where they held their festival celebrations, all of these central to Jewish life. They have reduced Jerusalem to rubble, God's holy city in ruins. The walls broken down, every important building was burned. The city was completely demolished. The shock and horror of what has happened was unthinkable. Now, remember back to how we felt on 9-11. Within a few short hours, two of our magnificent buildings had been reduced to rubble. Foreign terrorists 
destroyed our symbols of democracy and free enterprise. On the one hand, there was moral outrage. How dare you? And on the other hand, unspeakable grief. Lives ruined forever, families torn apart, and a sense of vulnerability that we could never have imagined. This is where they are, indignation and indescribable sadness. But it gets worse. Verse 2, they've given the dead bodies of your servants as food to the birds of the air, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. A barbaric, ruthless slaughter, piles of dead bodies in the streets, vultures and animals eating their flesh. The smell of death is everywhere. It is repulsive and sickening. Verse 3, they have poured out blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there is no one to bury the dead. Now, this tells us that this is a recent event because there are still dead bodies in the streets. Why are they not buried? It doesn't say. Perhaps at the writing of this lament, the sheer number overwhelmed the few remaining people in Jerusalem, or they were afraid to venture out because their lives were still in danger. Now, we have a metaphorical image here of blood being poured out all around Jerusalem. And to the Jew, blood is sacred. Asaph is reminding God, this is your inheritance, your temple, your people, your servants. This has been done to you. Have you ever felt that things are so bad that they will never get better? That life is so hard and there is so much damage done that it will never be repaired? This is where they are. And then, to add insult to injury, verse 4, we are objects of reproach to our neighbors, of scorn and derision to those around us. The neighboring Gentile nations are now mocking their God. In the ancient Near East culture, one nation's victory over another was proof that their gods were superior to their gods. And so their faith is now being ridiculed, and the piling on of insults brings further pain. They have been greatly humbled and humiliated. Now, after 9-11, we watched the world's reaction. Some people actually cheered what happened. Some people blamed America instead of the terrorists. And some were just glad to see America brought to her knees. How did it feel? It hurt. The next section, five through eight, is God's jealous anger. The lament continues, but now they are conceding the cause of their catastrophe. Verse 5, how long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? Asaph is acknowledging that these events are God's judgment on his people. They knew the curses for disobedience from Deuteronomy 28. Let me read you one example. 
The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will become a thing of horror to all the kingdoms on earth. Your carcasses will be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. They are now experiencing these consequences. When he asks, How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? He knows God's character, and every Jew knows God's description of himself. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. God's jealous anger was poured out on his own people who had fallen into apostasy. They had abandoned their faith. God's jealousy is one of his attributes. So let's talk about it because there's actually a sweetness in this attribute that's often missed. Since God is the one and only true God, there are no others. He is the one and only true God. Then he alone is worthy to be worshipped. That's why he made it the first commandment. When people give their allegiance and their affection to other gods, they are destroyed because no other god can save them. And therefore, God's jealousy is a good thing. God's jealousy protects us and guards us from our own destruction. Now, in Psalm 79, we see the severity of God's jealous love. God disciplines his people as a cleansing agent to purify the nation and put them back on the right course. God disciplines his people because he is jealous for our good. Verse 6, pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. When he says pour out, It's the same word that he uses back in verse 3, that blood had been poured out all over Jerusalem. Now he's saying, you pour out your wrath on them. God's wrath is consistent with his character. It is his holy response to sin and evil and wickedness. Verse 7, for they have devoured Jacob and destroyed his homeland. Well, you know, Jacob is just the original name for Israel. He's saying, Lord, this is the land that you gave us. Asaph pleads with God on the basis of God's covenant with Israel. The stipulations in the covenant promise retribution to any who harm Israel. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. So just as the Lord was true to his word to punish Israel, God will be true to his word to punish those who harm Israel. Verse 8, do not hold against us the sins of the fathers. Those left in Jerusalem are suffering the consequences of a nation that has fallen away from God. But some of them are a faithful remnant who didn't participate in the idolatry and the wickedness. And yet they are stuck with the consequences. God's people often suffer because of the sins of others. 
It is a fact of this broken world. May your mercy come quickly to meet us. And this is an image of God running with mercy to those who are running to him. Mercy is needed because they are guilty of disobedience, idolatry, and ignoring God's warnings. For we are in desperate need. Literally, it reads, we are in a low place. It is an overwhelming sense of loss and hopelessness. They have nothing left but guilt and grief. The third section, 9 through 12, is a plea for God's intervention. Help us, O God, our Savior, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and forgive our sins for your namesake. Asaph is acknowledging their guilt. Many of them had, had mocked the prophet Jeremiah for his warnings, and they are now reaping what they sowed. Asaph is saying, help us, God, by delivering us and forgiving us so that the focus can turn from our deserved punishment to their deserved punishment. In these verses 9 through 11, he's saying, help us because your reputation is at stake. Verse 10, why should the nation say, where is their God? In the ancient Near East, there was a lot of taunting that came with war. Now, when you were the victor, you did the taunting. But when you were defeated, you received the taunting. And part of Israel's grief is that their consequences for their own disobedience has caused their enemies to mock their God. The enemies are boasting that the God of the Jews is powerless. Before our eyes, make known among the nations that you avenge the outpoured blood of your servants. God, show these nations that you won't tolerate treating your people this way. Avenge their blood now so we can see it. Vengeance is also consistent with God's attributes and his promises. Several months ago, when ISIS beheaded Coptic Christians on the beach and then put it on the internet for all the world to see, people no doubt asked, where is their God? If the God of the Christians is the true God, as they say, why did God not rescue them before they were beheaded? And you know, that's the same question they asked about Jesus on the cross. Let's see if his God will come down and rescue him. Verse 11, may the groans of the prisoners come before you. By the strength of your arm, preserve those condemned to die. Their prayer now extends to their brothers and sisters who have been taken to exile to Babylon. Many of them are held prisoners awaiting execution. And now we have an image of people groaning. Asaph wants to take God back to the time when Israel was in slavery in Egypt. God 
had told Moses, I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to set them free. During the time of the judges, God's people also groaned in their misery, and God sent judges to deliver them. Historically, God had responded to the groans of his people. And Asaph is saying, Lord, your people are groaning. The strength of your arm, this is a figure of speech that's called an anthropomorphism, which means giving God human attributes. It's very common in the Psalms. In this particular case, it refers to God's power. By your power, set those prisoners free. Verse 12, pay back into the laps of our neighbors seven times the reproach they have hurled at you, O Lord. Now we call this an imprecatory verse, calling down curses on your enemy. It's actually very common in lament psalms, and this one's very mild compared to some other lament psalms. It's asking God for talionic justice. Do to them what they did to us. It's based on God's character and God's warnings because God has already said that he would pay back to those who harm Israel. So Asaph is just saying, Lord, be true to your word. Defend your name and your honor. And then seven times is an expression that just means completely. Okay, consider what our sin does to God's reputation. When a believer in Jesus is arrested for embezzlement or domestic abuse or drunk driving, something, God's reputation suffers. Now, verse 13 is the conclusion. Anticipated praise to God. Then, We, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will praise you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. All lament psalms, except for two of them, end with praise. This expresses confidence in God, even in the midst of horrific circumstances that seem hopeless. He is saying, when you avenge these atrocities, and we know that you will, then we will praise you, and we will tell future generations about it. They knew that all the hardships in their past became part of their story of God's deliverance, and this deliverance will only add to their story. We have another image the sheep of God's pasture. This is a term of endearment. It is God who gave that name to Israel, that they were the sheep of his pasture. And he gave them the land as the pasture. Now, by ending the psalm in this way, Asaph is leading the people to the bigger picture because they are stuck in the moment. God will be faithful to do what he says, both to his enemies and to his people. He will punish his enemies, he will discipline his people, and then he will restore them. Now, to summarize Psalm 79, it is a communal lament where Asaph is their spokesperson. 
He laments the horrors of what has happened in Jerusalem. He acknowledges that they themselves are the ones who provoked God's anger. He asks for mercy and forgiveness. He tells God to punish the nations that did this, and he urges God to defend his honor to those who mock him. Now, because he knows God's character and God's word, he leads the people to confidence that they will again praise him. And this catastrophe will be part of God's legacy of faithfulness from one generation to the next. So how can a lament psalm from so long ago benefit us today? Well, Romans 15 tells us that everything that was written in the past was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Psalm 79 transports us back to an event, the devastation of God's people and God's temple, brought on by national apostasy, a falling away from the faith. Just like Elton John's tribute to Princess Diana took us back to that very sad day. Did you know that his song, Candle in the Wind, was originally written in 1973 about Marilyn Monroe, about her public life and her private pain that ended in suicide? And when Diana died, Elton saw the similarities in their tragic stories, and the words were adapted for Diana. Lament psalms work that way as well. We can adapt a lament psalm to any current crisis. For example, Psalm 79 describes the catastrophic consequences brought on by the apostasy of a nation, a nation that has fallen away from her faith. Fast forward 2,600 years And we have a similar situation, the apostasy of the American church. Our morality is in freefall. Tolerance has replaced truth. And idolatry has a new look. Technology, entertainment, and science. The recent Supreme Court ruling moved us one step closer to the abyss. We can adapt this psalm for the American church. But now every lament psalm has an acknowledgement of guilt. And so what might that be for us? Well, there's probably many different explanations. I offer one option. The gay lobby did a better job of spreading their message than the Christians did in spreading our message, the gospel. The nation bought into their message and rejected ours. And all of us will be facing the consequences. The mockers are having a field day, slandering God's name and distorting his word. The recent Scottish ruling is a seminal event for sure and more are on the way. 
Jesus warned us that perilous times are coming to the earth, and there will be a great apostasy in the last days. Jesus' words, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. We already see the beginnings of this. So what can we do? What should we do when God brings judgment on the American church? Can we learn from Israel, or is it too late for the American church? This communal lament psalm is a pattern for us and serves as a model. Cry out to God Vent the problem, whatever it is. Confess sin, yours personally, and the sins of the church. Plead with God for his intervention, his mercy, his deliverance, and the defeat of his enemies. And express confident praise in God based on his character and his promises to his people. Now, I realize this has been a heavy topic tonight. But I don't feel like I need to put a heavy, uh, a positive spin on this, but rather to remind you that there is a time to weep and there is a time to mourn. And God makes everything beautiful in its time. Let's pray. God, we we are grateful that your word models for us the lamenting of a nation because we have much to lament. We need an outlet for our confusion and our pain. So, Lord, I pray for our group as we go to our discussion groups that you will help us process what we have heard tonight Help us learn the lessons from history so that we don't have to repeat it. And Lord, we praise you because you are true to your word. We love you. We lay down our lives before you. And we pray in Jesus' mighty name.